What's up, everybody? This is Patrick Jones. You're listening to Patrick Jones Baseball. Going to do a little bit different this week, and I have a throwback Thursday to my very first episode with my good friend, the former NL MVP, George Foster. Hope you guys enjoy. joined today by my good friend George Foster. Thanks for being here today, George. Sure, sure. <laughs> Checks in the mail, I believe. <laughs> All right, so what have you been up to lately? Have you? I know we're currently at a tennis facility, and I know you beat me the other day, so besides that, anything? No, no, I didn't beat you. I beat you down. <laughs> but your sister was there. I didn't want to you know, embarrass you too much, but I had told your dad that I know I didn't want to hurt you physically, but I know it hurt your ego. <laughs> sure, sure. All right. Well, first off, I kind of want to get into a little bit of, you know, your background, you growing up. Um, when you were growing up, did you realize at a young, younger age that you had something special and uh, by paying, by playing baseball? I think the specialty is the, the determination of having that passion. I had the passion to play play baseball. I don't know, didn't know what level I would get to but I idolized a guy like Willie Mays and I wanted to get to the level that he was so as it turned out I every day practicing on my throwing my running my hitting and it turned out that uh, I, I had an opportunity to make it to the major league uh, through the Giants organization and got a chance to play alongside Willie Mays my idol you know that's that's like a fantasy uh, or a dream come true so I learned a lot from Willie Mays and, and something that I always cherish, getting a chance to meet him and, and learn the game of baseball and, and life skills. So you went to, I believe, was it junior college right out of high school? Yes, I had gotten hurt in, in high school playing basketball. I hit my knee on the rim going for a rebound. And so then I had to play another year because I missed my senior year in, in high school. So the scout who signed me recommended my going to junior college just get another year in. At that time, junior college was equivalent to maybe single-A ball and pro ball. So I, I went there and had a pretty good year. And then from there, it's, it's history as far as – well, the, the decision, big decision was if I – my first year in pro ball, if I didn't do well, I would go back to school. Uh, but as it turned out, it gave me more, I guess, uh, incentive to play well and from there, we, I had like hit 277 that first year. I was the most improved player that particular year. And then I played winter ball, and I hit over 300. So from there, I, I, that's where my career started. Gotcha. And then so the Giants drafted you, right? Yes. The, it, there were two drafts then. It's a June draft and a January draft. There's only one now. So I was drafted in January, which was, um, I guess, a special draft. But the – the ironic thing about it, the guy who signed me signed John Carlos Stanton with, with the Marlins down. How old is this guy? Well, he's passed away now. Oh, jeez. All right. He's probably about in his late 70s or, or early 80s. Okay. And so did, did, did you have to lie about your age back then or anything? I didn't have to, you know, but, you know, I was watching all these uh, – it wasn't, you know, they didn't have a CSI Miami and things as such. No, but <laughs> to get an edge, uh, I put my age back a year because I'm competing with a guy who's, who was 20, you know, and I set my age back to 19. So they figured that at 19, I have room to develop. And the guy at 20, he's reached his peak. So that was an advantage. Uh, but later on, when I, well, later on, I make sure I had give my correct age, uh, especially 
especially when uh, you, you, you have your license and everything, you want to make sure you have the right ID. Right. And so you made your, your major league debut at 2020, 20, right? Or 21? Uh, let me see, 69, so it's 20. 20. 20 right? And then so you played, what, two, a few years with the Giants and then traded over to the Reds? I was in there. I played, well, I was in their organization from 68 to mid-71, May of 71, then I was traded to the Reds. But I didn't get a chance to play a lot because I'd been the fourth outfielder behind Bonds, Mays, and this guy, Ken Henderson. So that was fine because we were in first place. I said, wow, my first year in, in Major League, we're going to go to the World Series. <laughs> uh, someone said, oh, hold it there. You're going to get traded to the Reds. We're in last place, 14 games out. So, but as it turned out, the Giants never did repeat until as a contender to 1990. So I got a chance to be involved with the Reds, 75, 76 World Series Championship. And then when you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but remember you telling me that when you got traded to the Reds, Willie Mays called Pete Rose to basically say, keep an eye out or keep it, you know, keep this kid on on the right track, keep an eye out for him. Yeah, I didn't know that till later on. But with the Giants or some teams, the the uh, veterans players do not speak to the the rookies. Mm-hmm. So for a while, a couple of guys on the team, they didn't speak to you. And unfortunately, they were pitchers. So if you made a mistake out in the outfield, they want to get you out of the lineup, tell a manager, don't play that kid when I'm pitching. So when I went to the Reds, uh, Pete Rose spoke to me like, are you talking to me? And said, are you talking to me? And he said, yeah, you. And But found out later Willie Mays had called to the Reds and told Pete to take care of this kid. And I know that was heartwarming knowing that Willie was, was still watching me and watching over me and making sure that people took care of me. What kind of uh, a teammate was Willie? Oh, he was a great teammate. I, I go back to spring training. Bobby Bonds and I were roommates, and we always go by Willie Mace's room by dinner time and eat his food. And you know, we're like poison control. We say, "Well, we got to eat this before make sure everything's fine." So we save meal money by going and eating his steaks or whatever he did order. Then we just tell him everything's fine. Just order something else. But Willie was very helpful in my my uh, development uh, as an outfielder, as a hitter, and. And it's just fun playing with a guy that you idolize and that you have watched play so well and was a superstar. Right. And then, obviously, he called Pete. You went over to the Reds. Um, and remember you telling me a few times that Pete actually invited you out for extra batting practice. Oh, that was uh, – well, I live right downtown. And, and knowing Pete, he, he doesn't give up in that bat. And even though he had gone 4-for-4, 5-for-5 four five five a previous game – he didn't have his have his stroke together, his swing path. So he would go out and take batting practice. I said, well, I didn't have anything else to do. So I went out to shag, shag fly balls. And, and then, he, then he gestured to me, you know, asking me to, you know, come on in. I said, well, am I doing something wrong? Am I catching the ball <laughs> wrong? If I, am I throwing it to the right place? So he said, come on in and hit. And I'm like, wow. But it, 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 it indicates that, you know, be prepared for every situation, and uh, there are times that you need to work on your own to get better. And that day, I started really learning how to hit left-handers because most left-handers throwers, their balls are, are uh, dipping away or sailing away. And and then I started being platoon, so I was doing well as in platoon ship playing against left-handers. So that day was very pivotal for me, uh, impactful because Pete Rose asked me to hit. And then getting giving me a chance and giving me pointers on what I need to do. Was he? Would you say he was the the hardest worker you've ever played with, as a t- as a teammate or even opposing player? I would 
say he he being a superstar, he's one of the hardest I had seen because a lot of guys when they reach a certain level, they figure they don't have to work as hard. But this guy had goals of hitting getting two hundred hits a a season, which it was a lot of hits and winning the batting title. So he had a lot of goals, and then he had his dad behind him pushing him that hey, you can get better, you can be better than that, or or you're better than that, and so you have to keep going out there and work at it and. Being able to be an impactful player, he wanted to make sure that he's lead the league in doubles or, or RB, not RBIs, but a batting average or hits. So he had a lot of goals that he, needed, he knew he needed to work hard to do that. Right. So when you first came over to the Reds, you weren't playing a ton right away. Let's see, 72, 73, and 74. Um, you were, you know, you played some, but he wasn't, you weren't an every single day player. Now, when I first had come to the Reds, I was playing on a regular basis, a okay. second behind Rose, and, and I never did keep track of my average, and I'm saying, oh, I must not be doing too well. When is the manager going to take me out of the lineup? But my average was pretty good, and I was in a great position because batting, batting second, then right behind Pete, then you have uh, Perez or Bench behind you. So I was in a great position as far as hitting, but I wasn't really prepared for that situation because with the Giants, I'm not playing that often. So after 71, I wasn't playing much in 72. And in 73, I was sent down to Indianapolis, AAA. And I think that's where I really got a start, restart in my career, getting myself prepared to play the game. And I think I was complacent just to make it to the major league and not being prepared to go farther than that. Could you, would it be all right if you told the story of when you were not playing a lot? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, okay, what's the story? <laughs> no, uh, Sparky Anderson, uh, they called him, well, for the pitcher's captain, Hook, but he was a great manager because he, he, he made sure everybody was in the game, uh, especially the, the, the part-time players, letting know each guy their role. So I think I had gotten a home run in a pinch-hitting situation, and then the, then the uh, reporter asked me, well, Sparky said you, you can't hit left, uh, right-handers. And I said, well, you don't, they don't make bats long enough to hit from the dugout. <laughs> and, and then Sparky wasn't too pleased with that. <laughs> so he tried to embarrass me. And Bert, Bert Hooten at the time, he was the top pitcher on the scene. He, I think he had started with the Dodgers and then got traded to the Cubs. So I didn't know I was playing the next day, but one of the reporters said, uh, you, you know you're starting. I said, I'm not starting because of right-hander. He said, yep, Sparky's putting you in there. So I went – you know, I went uh, easy four for four, two home runs, four <laughs> RBIs. But I look back because Willie Mays would say, "You don't be concerned about who gets the credit." So in that instance, uh, Sparky Anderson got the credit because, wow, that was ingenious. You put him Foster in the lineup against Bert Hooten and see what he did. But he was probably fuming. I thought he was going to go zero for four, four strikeouts, but. That was he was hoping you were going to go, hoping, hoping yeah. that I would uh, do badly. But as it turned out, I. There were people around me that gave me information, informed me what I needed to do. And, but it's back to that statement, being able to be prepared for whatever uh, opportunity. Right. And then in 75, that was your, that was your real first breakout year, um, especially from a power perspective. I mean, that, anything different um, that year versus, you know, years before? Because, I mean, that, was, that, for, that year was really like put you on the map in terms of like a power hitter. Well, I started to get, uh, I think, I started to get stronger, um, and plus uh, I played winter baseball, and, and it gave me a chance to learn more about hitting and develop as far as hitting. 
And I believe I hit 23 home runs that particular year. But I started to know what I could do. I always hit the ball well to, to right field, but learning to hit the ball in the gap. With Ted Kozuski, our hitting instructor, you know, he was very encouraging and giving me pointers on how to do that. But before, I was just satisfied, just uh, get a base hit. But he taught me how to drive the ball. And back to that statement, being ready for the opportunity. So the Reds had uh, – the Dodgers had won in 74 – and now the Dodgers were in first place, and we were behind them. And everybody's, a lot of guys' jobs were on, on the line, especially Sparky Anderson. So somebody got the idea of putting me in the left field because playing part-time, I think I had eight home runs. This is like in April, eight home runs and, and uh, leading the team. So as it turned out, I got the opportunity to play. They moved Pete, Pete Rose to third, and, and didn't didn't did Pete vol- didn't he volunteer to move to third so you could be in the left? Is that right? They said he volunteered, but I I had sent him a uh, message that hey you got the sundown to get out of <laughs> left field. No, but yeah, he volunteered. That shows you that he's a, he's a team player, and because Pete had come at it, come up come up as a second baseman, then he went to the outfield. And then he went back to third base, and he turned out to be a gold glove at third base and another and an all-star player. But that shows you the camaraderie or the, him being a team player. Now, in 77, that was your NL MVP year. 77, man. 77. I went off, man, I went off. 320, 124 runs scored, 52 home runs. 50, 50. 50? No, 50. 52. 52. Yeah. 100 and what? 120? I'm just kidding. 140, 149 RBIs. I was an underachiever that year because I needed 150 RBIs. I only got 149. So I was an underachiever. I mean, what type of, I mean, it's, it's one thing to be an everyday player at the major league level, but to be a, an MVP from a mental standpoint, the season's such a long grind. I mean, how, how are you able to stay just level headed the entire season and just, I think uh, 70, 76 taught me a lot, a big lesson, because I was uh, close in average home runs, RBIs, as far as winning the Triple Crown. So the reporters got in my head saying, you may be able to win the Triple Crown. But the more I, home runs I tried to hit, the lower my average went, and I wasn't driving in the runs. And then I had to really hold on to the RBI so I could w- win the RBI crown. But I learned a lot in 76 not to go out there and pressure myself or force myself to do certain things, but be being prepared and, and, and do what I need. I felt I could do. So 77, it was like a combination of 75 and 76. I hit 23 home runs in 75, 29 and 76. So I said, well, I'll just combine it in one year. <laughs> but it was great to hit that amount because the last guy who had done that before me was my idol, Willie Mays. I believe it was like in 65. So it's something that... I done, had done something my idol had done, but I was mentally, physically, mechanically prepared that particular year. I had taken martial arts. I always made sure I let pitch, pitchers know I took martial arts because <laughs> if they threw me inside, it, it, they're in danger of my coming out there charging mound. Yeah, did you did you notice pitchers throwing you differently throughout that season? Because uh, to get to fifty two home runs, obviously you're dominating pretty much the entire season. So the second half of the year, did, did you notice any changes? or? Well, the biggest change that I moved up in the lineup. Okay. And that's why I was getting having a guy, Johnny Bench, behind you. So you were, you were fourth or third? I was hitting fourth. You were hitting fourth? Time. So uh, Johnny Bench was behind me, and they're, they rather try to pitch to me to hope that I get myself out than to pitch, uh, walk me or – 
and Johnny comes up and hit a two-runner. So having someone behind you is very important, just as it is who's in front of you. Uh, like you have a Morgan or Griffey on base, you're going to get a lot of fastballs to hit. And you have a bench behind in, behind you, you're going to get a lot of fastballs to hit. So being prepared for that situation, that in, in the sense of like hitting in a rocking chair because you're knowing that you're going to get a lot of fastballs to hit, but be prepared for it. Now that big red machine is you know notorious for being one of the greatest teams of all time. What was the, the chemistry like? in the clubhouse because there's a lot of stars on that team and so sometimes you know what you see with teams there's you know there's egos involved right. and not everyone gets gets along because everyone wants a spotlight so what was what was it like in the clubhouse well that was a big thing that sparky anderson said everybody check their ego at the door that this is a team player it's not uh i it's it's, it's we and that we're going to go out there and play as a team. And that was the key to our ball club. Everybody knew what they needed to do, what their role was. Uh, Rose, uh, Griffey to get on base, Joe, Morgan, myself, Perez, Bench driving runs. And then you had guys batting seventh and eighth, Concepcion and Geronimo, who hit, who's hitting 300 and good, good speed. So we had great balance on that team. We had guys that we, we believed in our abilities, and we knew what we needed to do. We didn't go, go out there. I didn't go out there to try to steal bases like a Morgan or looking to uh, lead the league in, in uh, average, but I'm looking to lead the league in home runs and RBIs. So everybody had a specialty, and I think that was the key. And we got along very well with one another. Now, wasn't, wasn't Morgan, or wasn't, I'm sorry, wasn't Pete Rose, the, was he, would you say he was the leader of that team? Or was it just a combination of... Some was, of the top guys. It was a combination. Uh, you had Rose, Bench, Perez, Morgan. Those guys were were the the leaders on that ball club. And and because Rose was there, he's being the captain. And then Johnny comes along. I think become co captain. But Morgan and Perez were in their own rights a, a star and a superstar. So Sparky made sure that he delegated responsibilities to those individuals. And that was a key also to Sparky delegating. A lot of managers wanted to do it all, but he trusted his players, he trusted his managers or his coaches to be able to give them responsibility. And that's that's what helped the whole ball club become better. Right. Now, like in today's age, like a typical day for like a, a big leaguers, you know, you, they get up, they go work out, lift in the morning, you know, maybe do some early work and then play. Was it similar back then where you guys, I know there's emphasis a little bit more on strength and conditioning nowadays. Right. Uh, we didn't, they didn't like us lifting weights. They thought we were going to get all bulky, but it's a different between weight lifting, weight training. So learning how to weight train that you're not, you want to get stronger, but you don't want to get too big, uh, especially as, as a hitter, even as a, throwing a baseball but my typical day is uh just just getting up and and of course go out and have breakfast but walk around get your body ready or acclimated to to that day uh take a power nap i listen to al green and oh then, i like the power nap oh yeah power nap is very important because it helps you to get in the zone or meditate and visualize you know being able to visualize yourself in the game before it even starts even comes about so when the game comes about you already prepared so when you go up to the plate you already is already like you playing it already played it in your mind what you're going to do that particular day but relaxing for maybe 15 20 minutes playing al green and then 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 james brown you know get up get up get on up <laughs> so, so you're gonna you want to start out relaxing and then relaxing, get yourself hyped yeah, up. Get up that upbeat ready to go ready to destroy people destroy so ERA. so there is there was some mental preparation it wasn't just you just believe in you know, from the beginning or from the beginning that you were the best. There was still, 
you know, you're meditating, you're oh, you're yeah. mentally preparing. Every is that before every that, single game? Every before every game, that's the mental approach. And a lot of guys, I look at threefold as far as being a a hitter or a player is the mental you have to have that mental the physical and mechanical but the mental part is going to keep put your heads and shoulders over everybody else what are you focusing on when you go up to the plate there are thousands thirty thousand more people out there yelling and screaming encouraging you to hit a home run but if you're on the road they're trying to discourage you from doing that but you got to get yourself mentally into the game they always talk about that tunnel vision being able to focus on what you need to do and other things are serve as a distraction. Don't even focus on that. Don't even give energy to it. Right. Now, would you guys talk about, you know, hitting all the time? You know, you're traveling. A lot of, you know, people know that a lot of the season is, you know, you're traveling, you're flying here, there, you're on buses, going to the park from the hotel. Uh, how often would you guys just sit around and just talk about hitting or talk about, you know, the pitcher that day? Well, mostly on when we're on the, on the bus traveling or didn't when we get to the ballpark. Because Pete always knew the starting line, uh, pitching rotation for that next series, and that helps because now you get to, you have that mental uh, recall. Okay, how did that guy pitch to me before? What does he have? What's his repertoire? And then looking at his release, focusing on his release point. So before the game starts, you already have that in your computer. So now you prepare. But I always go out and watch the guy warm up because he may have changed his uh, release point. So that in order, also he may have added a pitch. So being able to be prepared when you go up to the plate. But Pete was the guy I always get us prepared as far as who's going to be pitching and what's the rotation. So I would go mentally over every guy in that, in that uh, bullpen and knowing if he comes out what he has. Right. Now, I remember, so you're playing left field in Boston, you know, the famous throw home. The famous. The famous yeah. throw home. I remember you telling me that. Highlight. Yeah, that before that, people would Red always, <laughs> they would always, you know, rip, or not rip on your defense, but yeah. they wouldn't, you know, compliment. But after that, you were the after that throw, there people weren't they weren't they coming up to you telling you how how well, great of a defender you were. Well, that one, is that right? Is that right? Yeah, that, that one throw made it. Made it. Figure, figure that, <laughs> and making that one throw, this guy can throw and don't run on him because the Red Sox in their meeting said anything hit the fall should just run on him. <laughs> And, but after that throw, you like, had some good velocity in that throw. That was a good, strong throw home. I pronated very well, but I, I calculated. I make sure I threw the ball over the guy's Denny Doyle's left shoulder. If I threw it a little bit to the right, it would hit him, and he'd been safe. But calculated right over his left shoulder, one hop to the plate, he's out. Make it more dramatic. Now you've always been known to be a hitter, but how would you? So before a game, are you going to spend just as much time on your defense because? You're, you know, more known as an offensive threat um, to try to, you know, improve your defense. Or are you mainly going to focus just on your hitting because that's your? I mean, that's what got you to the major leagues. No, everything uh, before we take batting practice. Well, while the the extra men are taking batting practice, the outfield coach is hitting me uh, fly balls, ground balls, or down the line or in the gap. So you get yourself acclimated to that feel or the the sun that particular day so you're just getting yourself ready uh making those certain moves and i always look forward to like in spring training we're on the foul line to so say the left field foul line we run towards center field he hits a fly ball we keeps towards right field so that not only got us in shape but also helped us to work on our defense so i took pride in in my defense uh i think in 77 i had the best fielding percentage 
I didn't get the gold glove, but I had the best field and percentage that year. Now, in 78, you came back the year after you won your NL MVP, and you uh, remained strong, still only hit 40 home runs that oh, year. yeah. Only hit. Did you – was that – since that was the following year from your MVP, I'm going to ask you kind of the same question. Did you see really pitchers kind of pitch you a lot differently? Were you still hitting uh, fifth, fourth in the order? I was still hitting fourth. Fourth. And was Johnny still behind you? Right. Okay. What, were they – more afraid of you now than him, and yeah, you know, pitch I made, you differently. I had made a statement, so they didn't want. And plus, I think I had a target on my body. So one reporter asked me, "So you hit fifty-two in one year and forty in the next? Well, what's the difference?" I said, "Well, it's easy math. It's twelve. <laughs> but I hit got hit like twelve or thirteen times that particular year, and so they were trying to intimidate me. So there were less guys or fewer guys wanted to challenge me, but they want to knock me out instead of get me out." But I, I knew that, so I, I was. I, I learned my second year in pro ball that the pitcher throwers try to intimidate you because I had a two. I would get, have two strikes on me, zero and two, and here comes the ball hitting me in the wrist, hit me in the, in the side. So they they were trying to intimidate me. So, but I I, I was overcome, able to overcome that situation. Right, and then so let's fast forward a little bit. Eighty one was your last year with the Reds, and then after that year. You, I believe you got traded actually, right to the. I know, you, or it was a free agent sign. You signed as well, a free agent to the Mets. I heard you got traded. Then I got. Tra- it was a trade. It was a trade because you said you you weren't going to sign long. Well, I wasn't going to sign. Well, they didn't want me to. They didn't want to give me a long term try. Okay. Uh, uh, contract, and they said that if I didn't really, it's like a threat. If I didn't sign, I was going to sit on the bench the whole year. So I just felt my value was going down by sitting on the bench. And I think, but at all, that time, you know that you some players had left. It wasn't, oh yeah, the big red machine, right? As uh, of old, Joe had left. Well, Pete had left first, then Joe, and then Griffey. And I, I don't know to this day they they uh, adhered to it. They said if they if they trade Griffey, they better trade me too. So they trade <laughs> Griffey. One day, the next day, I was traded. But I wish we could have gone to the same ball club. I went to the same city, but I wish we could have gone to the same ball club. Weren't you guys roommates? Yeah, well, starting in 73, when I was sent down, we become roommates. And we are roommates, and we got back to the major league. So he was, the, I would say, the best roommate I've had because we had the same uh, mindset. We want to go out there and prove to ourselves and to the, to the team that we could play. And I know – there are a lot of incentives, but the big incentive for us when we weren't in the starting lineup is to get right first class. And yeah. <laughs> to ride first class, you had to be in the starting lineup. I said, okay, so we're going to get in the starting lineup. But like I say, small things uh, make a big deal and or incentives, but being able to get in first class and then being able to start on a regular basis. So, But you guys had similar personalities too, right? I mean, he, you guys weren't out, out till 2 in the morning. Well, that's, that's – I know, I know, you, I know you, you're a hardcore drinker and everything, but – Yeah, but I, <laughs> I had I – had you know, at the time you can get uh, room service or have people deliver it. No, but we didn't uh, go out partying. We just stayed in the room, getting ourselves prepared for the next day. Uh, other guys may, you know, have a different mindset, but we knew we wanted to be a long run as far as our career, not to have two or three years, but being able to put in a lot of years. And we knew we needed to get our rest, and we just had that drive to be able to go out there and see how good we can do each day. Now, after you did get did start playing with the Mets in '82. Um, did you feel a lot of pressure that first year because you signed a long-term deal with, with the Mets? So in 82, were you feeling like you needed to really come in and make a statement? Yeah, I did. I think it, I thought it was going to be one of these uh, 
Cinderella or miracle type years that I know that I didn't realize that every each team has a different mindset in winning or playing in the Mets. In spring training, you think that the Mets were the ones who had won the World Series, but because they didn't work as hard, and the Reds worked, and their organization worked much harder. I was I would ask for extra batting practice. Oh well, we come out the next day, but you get maybe ten or fifteen swings. I said that's that's not even enough for me to get myself ready. But I had the mindset thinking that everything's going to automatically happen. But they were pitching around me because there's no one behind me that's a threat. And I, I felt I wasn't effective by walking because I get on base. Of course, I'm not a base dealer, so it's not going to help the ball club. So I wanted to make an impact, and the only way I could make an impact is by driving in runs. But that was, that was one of those years that it's like a nightmare type year, but I tried to learn from it. I knew I wasn't as physically prepared as I needed to be. But uh, going back, I still would have made the same decision going to the match, but I think I would have been more prepared. Yeah, I remember you telling me about uh, stealing bases. I think I asked you a question about a year ago <laughs> about stealing bases. You're like, uh, you're talking to the wrong guy, and I didn't, I didn't mess around with any. Well, you had 17 one year, didn't you? I had 76. 17. I don't know what year. I think it was 76. I, probably 76. I thought it was, I thought it was 77 because I said I needed three more to be 50-20, uh, but it probably was 76. But it, nobody knows it was on the tail end of the double steal. So okay, I, yeah, a lot of pa- I, I tell people <laughs> that I, I stole second base standing up. <laughs> because they tried to get Joe Morgan at third. Now, in your second year with the Mets, though, you you came a little bit back to your power self. You know, you came back. You had twenty eight home runs that year. Twenty eight home runs, ninety RBIs. It was uh, it was a, another coming out year. I didn't hit high that well for average, but I wanted to get that power base. It's, it's amazing how you can lose your swing and not. Yeah, how, how does that? I mean, because you play so many games. I mean, right. But going there is that you don't have that person who worked with you before and letting you know that you're on track or off. And of course, now you want to please everybody by listening to what their theories, because they had this guy there who had worked or was a hitting coach or batting coach with George, with George Brett with the, Kansas City. So I said, well, maybe he knows something about hitting. So I was listening to him, but they didn't really help me. But I'd, if, once again, if I had to do it all over again, being able to have someone there that helped me before to work on my mechanics. And I remember you also telling me that when you first got to New York, you actually had a, an ankle injury. And oh. you, you wish you would have probably sat out early on. Is that, isn't that right? Well, I didn't know the serious nature of it. And to this day... It, it, it bothers me, but I, I thought it was just a normal uh, ankle sprain that it would, I would recover. But I found, I look at my batting stances from, say, 79 on, I said, why did it change? But I was, it changed because I started wanting to take pressure off my left, my left ankle. And that, was, that made a big difference in my home run output. And, but it's, I look at, well, other guys have worse injuries than I did, but being able to go out there and still compete uh, was the key. Right. And you, you see, and it's funny you said, you know, you weren't, you know, your swing was a little bit off, even though at that time, you know, you're what, 33, I believe. Right. Um, and that just, can you, could you talk a little bit about how, no matter how many at bats you have or how long you've, you've played in the major leagues or the success that you've had, but it's always a work in progress. It seems as every day. I mean, even up to that point, you're you NL MVP, two time right. World Series champ. But when you become you MVP and you come from the big red machine, that the high expectations there. And at times, you want to try to live up to that. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not any fun going out there and getting booed. 
but you always want to do something well. I remember I was on a pace. I like three or four weeks in a row. I had hit grand slam, and there's one time I came up bases loaded. I popped up. I got booed. Then the next time I came up, I got a base hit. I got booed because I didn't get the the, the hit when the bases were loaded. And but there was this, to this day though it was funny. I don't know how the guy reached me or got to me, but uh, he was on third base dugout. I came up to bat, and he was like, get him out of there. He's the bum. Get the bum out of here. Get him out of there. So the first pitch I fouled back, I said, take him out. He's a bum. He's a bum. Next pitch I hit over the left field wall as I'm around the third base. That's my man. All right, that's my man. <laughs> but it shows you how fickle they were and how they would change from one pitch or one game to the other. What, did that ever, when you were struggling, did, you, did that ever get under your skin a little bit, people booing and, and things like that? It, it, because it bothered it, me more because my family were there. Okay. And I could deal with it, but with your family and friends there, it, I, I, I try to warm it. You may not want to go to the game today, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, with your family and friends there, and you're getting booed. Was the crowd a lot more tough in New York than, than Cincinnati when yeah. you weren't playing well? Well, the fans in Cincinnati, they know the game, and they have com- more compassion. And the thing that really sets it all with the Reds fans is even if a opposition make a good play, they're going to applaud it. But with the, with the New York fans, if you, every, if you don't get a hit every at-bat, or if you don't get a hit, they expect. Because I went four for four one game. I didn't hit a home run. They were like, where's your power? I said, I went four for four. So, no, I go one for four, hit a home run. Okay, you, what about those three outs you made? Yeah. So you're never going to satisfy them. And that was – I got myself caught up in there trying to satisfy everybody. And then also I, sp- I sped my mindset up. And usually April, I, I'm – slow as far as uh, getting my stats together and then I get stronger as we get into May and June but I try to force feed everything and then now I'm starting to swing for home runs instead of hitting hitting for average and then let the home runs come about yeah so that's the other thing I kind of want to ask you about being a power hitter what I you know you really weren't that big of a guy you were more on the thin side um how how does someone 95 strong (laughs) 31 inch waist I didn't say that 31 inch waist so what what are the differences you look back at your career and some of the some of the numbers of the years you have you know 52 home runs 40 home runs maybe you know in that second year with the Mets 28 home runs what's the difference or why why uh how could someone you know be able to hit a, a consist really consistent amount of home runs why is it so tough well the the bat speed is more in your your fingers hands and forearms and a lot of guys thinking that it's going to be more just have to get stronger or bigger but you've got to make sure that your fingers hands and forearms are strong and I did a lot of that listen to Willie Mays or Roberto Clemente and those guys make sure that your forearms because that's that's where you get the bat speed in the forearms and, and you got to have strong fingers and I use a 35 35 uh, thin handle bat because my fingers are not as long as say some of the other guys but my hands were big but making sure that the uh, I get to have that 35-35, I throw it out there compared to swinging it. And being quick as such, you're going to be able to drive the ball. But that's what I worked on a lot. But your legs are important, too. I did a lot of running uh, each before each game, doing a lot of running, getting yourself prepared. To this day, a lot of guys, they get tired around July or August because their legs, they're tired, they're, they're fatigued, and they try to change their swing. But it's not their swing, it's that their, their base is not strong enough. Yeah, I remember we were talking about, we won't name that particular player, but 
you you always tell me every year later in the year he's going to get tired <laughs> yeah. and the, you know that's so important so how many how many sprints would you run before a game is that or was it was it more like poles well, you would run uh run uh 4 to 5 pole to pole and then before the game we would run 8 8 to 10 sprints and especially if you go to Atlanta or you go to St. Louis you got to get yourself acclimated to that weather and, but getting your body ready for what you need to do. But a lot of guys, they sit in the dugout and they go out and take batting practice. They throw and they jog. But you got to get yourself ready for what you're going to do during the course of the game. And I took pride in that. I, I learned my first year in pro ball in 68. I said, nobody else is running. Why should I run? Then I started feeling my back getting stiff. My legs were stiff. I said, oh, I got to start running again. So from 68 on, that's when I learned that I need to make sure that you keep your legs ready and keep your body ready for the task ahead. Now, not a lot of people know, but actually after, so you finished up with the Mets and then you got traded to the White Sox. And briefly. Then, <laughs> briefly. And then after that, you actually played two more years in what, in oh, Florida? Isn't that right? Senior League. Senior yeah. League. So that, would that, would you consider that to be like an independent league at, for today? That was the start of the independent league. And, uh, it, it only had gone for maybe a year and a half, but that was the start of it. It was equivalent. Only difference is that you had a lot of former major league players playing in the senior league. But I say that's the start of the independent league. And then now the, because ball clubs were reluctant to re-sign a guy because they said that they made a mistake. So, but now the independent league, they have guys that they that are in the major league now doing a great job. Yeah, you played. So you played eighteen years in the in the major leagues, and then two more. You think you could have kept going? But uh, did you want to keep going after, at that point? No, it's they. Usually, the first thing that go are your legs, and my legs weren't there, and and maybe if I had a had a trainer at the time it was a misnomer to have a trainer but being able to train better having someone train me in a way i didn't i hadn't done before so my legs had uh gone so i knew I, I wouldn't be able to play the outfield and then it's an embarrassment being on the base and and united to score from second base so but uh if i had to do it all go over again yeah i've been able to get a trainer because it's uh it will help in, in getting my body ready well, what was your biggest – so what was your, that actually brings me up to my next point. What was your biggest regret? If you could go back over the course of your entire career, would you do anything differently? The biggest regret is styling going around third base. It said, do not watch the ball as you tag in the base. So I'm rounding third base, and that's where I turned my ankle. Okay. I wasn't looking at the base, and I was looking at the, the, the play. And, but that, that one, one incident – really affected the rest of my career so not styling going around the bases make sure that you do everything that you need to do do the basics and that that, that way you pre- prevent yourself from getting hurt now you see kind of obviously you're a little bit before you know ahead of your time in terms of philosophies on hitting I think a lot of old school hitting right and I know we've talked about this before you know swing down on the ball now it's more you know kind of what you've remember talked about in the past where you're swinging up on the ball what what advice would you give to uh kids out there who, to work on their swing like any any particular advice i know you obviously worked with a lot of kids right now well the number one thing is keep both hands on the bat uh, all the way through the swing 
there are some guys who are successful in doing that, but it's still the timing. Like a George Brett, he would let go with one hand after he's made contact. But a lot of kids are letting go as they make contact. They're not strong enough right now to swing with both hands. Now they're trying to swing with one hand. You can injure yourself and maybe get discouraged because you're not, not hitting the ball as well. And I focus on hitting ground balls and hard line drives. Uh, hitting fly balls, you take the the best as far as a season would Barry Bonds hit 73, but what did he do the other times at bat? So being able to put the ball in play by hitting on the ground, hitting line drives is going to help you become a better player. But the number one thing to help you become a better hitter is learning how to bunt because you got to watch the ball hit hit the bat and check and help you with the angles. If you're going to bunt to first base, you're going to point the, the knob of the bat towards third. If you're going to bunt to third base pointing the barrel to, to first base so the same thing when you're hitting a baseball you work on the work on the angles but you're going to see the ball better when you're learning how to bunt because you had to see the ball hit the bat and that's coming from a guy who very very rarely bunted right I, never, <laughs> I bunted maybe two times and one was successful as far as bunting to get a sacrifice and the other was I bunted a line drive to third base and I said if I'm going to hit a bunt a line drive so I bet most likely you know, swing the bat. But Johnny Bench was great in, in laying down the bunt because the third base in the back. But sometimes if you get out, you feel that it was a wasted effort. But uh, it was exciting finally, you know, bunt and, and, and put it in play. Is, uh, is Jose Batista still your favorite power hitter? I remember we talked about this before. It's, it's changed. It's changed. Uh, well, he's, he hasn't been – he's not having a, a great, great year. He's he been got, injured he got a little bit. knocked out that time. Yeah, what was that? Was that last year or two years yeah, ago? That it, was, yeah, that was last Texas year. Texas Rangers. Odor. Wow. But uh, it went from him to Mike Trout and then from Mike Trout to Aaron Judge, but now it's Carlos Stanton. This guy goes out there and polarized the ball. What, uh, what differences do you see? You see that, you know, we were talking about that close stance he has now. Do you think that's because this is? I mean, this is really his breakout year. Yeah. So, do you think that's one of the one of the reasons why he's having that this that, year? That and he's staying healthy and he's using the whole field. And if you're able to use the whole field, they can't pitch you in a certain way. Only only shift they can be successful with him is putting players in the in the bleachers. But uh, this guy's driving the ball everywhere, and and he's the confidence. But I could say the key though is staying healthy. In the past, he's gotten hurt or in some way, shape, or form. Now, what baseball is 90% mental, right? Do you think that a Hall of Fame player, like, you know, we're talking about Pete, Joe Morgan, did you see, was the reason that they were able to take their game to another level was because they were just so confident in themselves, not necessarily skill-wise? Well, the confidence is uh, one of the intangibles, but skills skills can be taught, and it's not – it's. Talent is something that yeah, you're born with, but uh, skills can be taught. Joe taught himself to, to steal bases. Joe taught – well, Ted Kuzuski, once again, worked with him because he used to just hit the ball to left field. Uh, taught him how to drive the ball. So, but having somebody there to let you know what you can be as, as a player. And Pete, has been a switch hitter, made himself a switch hitter. And being it, knowing that uh, drive the ball to the outside field, you don't have to pull the ball when you're a switch hitter. But the intangible – having the confidence uh, and being, being determined and having that passion. you got to have a passion if you're going to go out there and do anything well. But these guys really want it. you got to be able to want it. And it's an individual commitment for a group effort. Get yourself prepared for, for the task and, and go work at it. Don't be complacent. A lot of guys get complacent. They have maybe 
25 home runs in August and say, well, I can hit 30, but, you know, go for 40, whatever. See what, how good you can be that particular year, what things you can do to help that ball club become better. Right. And then last thing I want to really harp on is, you know, were you ever at a point where in your career where, you know, you're struggling, you're going through a stretch? Did you ever doubt yourself? I doubt it, which is human nature. You doubt yourself if uh, if you can come through in that situation. And then you start trying to do things. Let's say if you have two strikes on you, you're still trying to pull the ball instead mm-hmm. of saying to yourself, I need to go to the opposite field uh, to put the ball in play. So you stop doing the things that got you there and made you successful. How do you get yourself back on track to that, that mental? like? It's a mental thing. Yeah. And then, then taking the effort to do it, Re- recognize it, and then taking the effort to do it. It's easy to just stay in that same so-called funk or rut, but you got to make yourself do it and, and regroup. And that's in life itself being able to make the adjustment. You go up to the plate the first time. I never give credit to the pitcher thrower that say he struck me out. I felt I struck myself out because I wasn't prepared for that certain location or a certain pitch. So the next time up, it's like, I got to make the adjustment. And that goes back to, you know, that mental preparation you were talking about before the game where you're visualizing. Oh, yeah. um, that and is, that, that can be tough when you're, especially when you're struggling. Well, that's where you have to find quiet time. Get quiet time is in your house or in the clubhouse. And if you love listening to music, what makes you relax? Get in that relaxed stage and just try to visualize when things were going well. Being able to project and but being able to relax up to the plate is very important. And but if you go up there, you're all jittery and, and, and not relaxed, not comfortable. You're going to find that you may be too late or be too early. But it's the timing is very important. But the relaxation is is the foundation. Do you? Is there any? Are there any players today that you see? You know, if they could to be able to take their game to the next level if mentally they were a little bit stronger or more more confident. Well, the guy that that really stands out if he just understand or listen, it's uh, Billy Hamilton for the Reds. This guy has the speed, but you you can't steal first base. But learning to hit the ball on the ground, learn to bunt. I know he got hurt the other day from bunting, but because he hadn't learned how to do it. But bunting and, and uh, hitting the ball on the ground, keep the ball out of the air. You go back to a guy like Matty Alou, even Ken Griffey Sr., they call him Kippy because he kept the ball in play. He had the most infield hits, uh, led the league in that, but he got on base. So being able to get on base and find out ways that you should get on, able to get on base, hitting a home run, it's okay for him, but now the pitcher's still throwing from a windup. Get him in a stretch. So now his tension is divided between Billy Hamilton on first base and who is ever batting. So it's just Billy Hamilton can become a star once he learns or accepts the fact of this is my role, this is my style of hitting. Are there any, what players would you say are out there who remind you of yourself growing up? Besides me, I know we've already <laughs> talked about that. Well, I have to go back to John Carlos Stanton. Okay. That guy. Yeah, I think he does have 52 now, so he's tied you. Is that yeah. right? He's got 52 yeah. right now? I usually, I remember Ken Griffey Jr. was with the Reds, and I think he had like 40, 45, and I, I told, told him, I said, I'm going to get you traded. I said, why? <laughs> so he won't break my record of 52. But uh, Stanton is the guy that, because he's, he's, the light has clicked, and I see him making that adjustment at the plate, and that he's not swinging 
at everything and that he's understanding that he can use the whole field. He doesn't have to hit the ball to left field or down the left field line because he's been able to hit the ball to the to right field because he's so strong and, and quick. So, But that confidence, when you have that, that confidence yeah. up there. And is that why you think Aaron Judge has really dropped off the second half? Because the first half, I mean, he was – He hadn't made the adjustment. They throwing him away, away, and he's still trying to pull everything. And I remember one uh, report, I hit a home run in the right center. He said, well, are you getting – you're losing your bat speed. So no, I'm just improving my skills or my know-how. If I don't have to hit home runs, I don't have to hit a ball to left field to be a home run. So when I hit 52 that year, I was proud of the 10 I hit the right center because you have to wait, wait, and be quick and be disciplined to hit the ball to the opposite field. And you're also using a you know 35-inch bat, so you're able to stay. You think because a lot of the guys today really don't use. No. I think Stanton and then Judge uses a 35, I think, too. But besides yeah. that, I don't think of. But Stanton throws it and Judge swings it. And so his bat is dragging through the hitting zone. But being able to throw that barrel out there, he can wait longer. But right now, he's, just, he's swinging. And so now he's caught back. So now the, the more strikeouts he has, the more he tried. He's trying to come out of his rut by hitting home runs. Mm-hmm. But being a, with, in New York, just hit the ball to right field. It, it's like yeah. a band box. A little fly ball, it's out of there. But maybe he's able to get to somebody, get with somebody who's going to show him what he needs to do. Because he doesn't know what to do right now because everybody was challenging him before. But now, knowing that he's a threat, they're going to throw that slider away or fastball up in the end, and he's just he keep on missing it. Who is, uh, who's your favorite baseball player of all time? Of all time. Of all time. Growing up, and that could be playing now. It could be me. Well, I mean, it could be. <laughs> Besides myself, um, <laughs> but the guy that would have had a great career, because I, I followed him around like a shadow, and to this day, I mean, he's younger than I am, but to this day, he's probably like, God, the, the guy's calling me in the morning. He's coming to my room. <laughs> he's asking for baseball bats. Cesar Cedeno, he played with. Astro, and they said he was going to be the next Willie Mays. This guy could do it all. I love to see him hit with two strikes. Hit the ball to right field like a left-hander. Play the outfield, great arms, speed. He had it all. He had the five tools. Then he, he got hurt. He turned his ankle at first yep. base, and, and right there was devastating. Now he's not a threat on the bases anymore. He's, that was game's changed. His game changed. He's not able to cover, cover the outfield as, as well as he had done before, and it affects your throwing. So that one one injury made a big difference. What what uh, you always hear of pitchers who you know they always say, well, you know, you played you played back in the day. They throw way harder now. They throw <laughs> way harder now. You have, you don't know what it's like, right? How hard? What do you th- do you see any, like any really big difference in velocity, or do you think they were throwing pretty much just as hard back then? Well, I feel they were throwing hard. with these guns now. You know, we don't know if it's calibrated correctly to create controversy or something to talk about. So, wow, this guy's 100, throwing 100, 102. But the, you've got to hit the ball the same same area each time. But they thinking that the harder they throw, the harder you have to swing. But he's supplying the power. Yeah. Just use your bat speed. Well, Nolan Ryan, I mean, he was still – Oh, He yeah. was throwing – Oh, know, that guy, he threw hard and had control. But you think someone going to has, throw hard and doesn't have control. But these guys, when we played – you, you probably in our era, you probably have the most pitchers who made the Hall of Fame. I there are very few guys that are playing now as a pitcher. I feel would make the Hall of Fame, but we had guys that were pitchers, not throwers. And they weren't afraid to throw at you either. No. 
No. Were you I, ever afraid of anybody going up there? Only Bob Gibson, because uh, he if you took too long in the batter's box or you did something he didn't like, uh, you're going to expect to wear that fastball on your 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 shoulder <laughs> or in your ribs. So you knew that when Bob's out there, he meant business. The mentality is definitely different from from pitchers. I would say, I mean, you, you see it a little bit. I see, you see, I saw Trevor Bauer the other day. I don't know if you saw that. No. Yeah, staring down. Uh, wow. Um, what's his name? I forget who was with the White Sox. But, yeah, I mean, that's definitely interesting. Um, well, Bumgarner's the same way. Bumgarner's the same way, <laughs> the same way. Uh, he was the toughest pitcher you've, you've ever faced. Uh, was it Gibson still? Because he was, mm, you know, you were a little afraid. I would say J.R. Richard because I faced him. We, he was in uh, our, our division. So, JR being six eight had a good fastball, good slider. Here's a guy that he wasn't intimidating as far as throwing at you, but he threw so hard and his slider was faster than his fastball. So, but JR Richards from the right side and Steve Carlton from the left because of the the slider. I always tell guys, especially left-handers, learn how to throw the slider. The slider, and that's they always talk about the palm ball, the fork ball, but the slider is the pitch. It's an out pitch. Right now. We like to first of all wrap up this interview, and I just want to thank George for for coming on here today. Um, and then there was uh, something that you know you wanted to talk about. Um, we we're we we're kind of raising uh, awareness for. Um, you want to go ahead and, and say? Yeah, raising awareness. Uh, he's a great friend, uh, Danny uh, O'Keefe. That he 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 has gone through a lot, and but he's still rehabbing, and and he has a great attitude. But uh, he was in a a, uh, an accident or a, bu- a brutal attack, and this guy survived. He saved his sister in this, in this instance, but this guy, he was, I think, was going to be a lawyer, and, and he had, his life was ahead of him. But uh, with this brutal attack, uh, he's somewhat debilitated, but he still come and work out and has a great outlook on life. But being able to help raise funds for this guy because he has a me- lot of medical problems or medical bills, but being able to help him, I know he's he's done golf tournaments, he's done uh, uh, walkathons. But he's a great guy, and and I'd known him for a long period of time. When I found out that he was a Reds fan, I I brought him a goodie bag, and and uh, with my picture and baseball and everything, I think he was throwing darts at my picture. But uh, <laughs> but no, he's a great guy, and and um, and being able to help this guy out it would be be great also yeah we'll we'll definitely put a link link up um next to the show notes um after we get everything uh set up and again you know thanks again for coming on today and you know you're talking about danny and i know you know you help out a lot of people you volunteer your time you know we were talking i was talking with devin who's in here and you know you you make a lot of kids uh happy um so i just want to say thank you know thanks a lot you know from the community perspective of just because giving your time that time's the one thing that uh, you know, you can't get back. So I just want to say thanks. I appreciate, you know, all the help you've given me over the past few years. And um, so I just want to say thank you. You know, I appreciate it. I know all the other kids appreciate it as well, uh, younger and older. So I just want to say thanks and um, appreciate again for coming on today. It was my pleasure. And I look, I look forward to it. And just, it's, it's all about helping others to help themselves. And and it makes me feel younger when I go out there working with the young kids and, and just impart the knowledge about the game and knowledge about life uh, to them, letting them know, giving them, giving them a head start on what they need to do and what, what they need to prepare themselves for. And 
and then beating them too, like you know, beating me in tennis. That, <laughs> make, that well, makes them feel really young. No, no, was it? So I learned not to be a bully or call <laughs> out someone. He called me out. I said, "Okay, you want some of me?" I was. I, I came up. I watched him play. I was like, "This tennis thing doesn't look very hard." Yeah. And then, I, and I was like, "Man, it, it's a lot harder than than it, than it looks." Yeah. You serve a lot harder than I thought too. Well, I didn't really serve my best serve. I just I didn't want to hurt you, like I said earlier. <laughs> so I just had given you my spin serve, but I knew that that was enough. I didn't want to serve my hardest because. You may not have the right equipment on if you got hit, <laughs> so I have to answer to your dad, who's like six six, six seven. So, <laughs> well, again, we appreciate coming on, and uh, I'll get you back into tennis eventually. So, thanks yeah, again. Right, I'm scared. <laughs>